Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. Just a few days ago, US EPA proposed a revised fine particulate, or PM2.5, national ambient air quality standard. And that has big implications anytime a new standard gets proposed and eventually to be finalized. So we wanted to make sure we responded to that very quickly and just talk about that. So we're going to sort of weave through the different aspects of this on the podcast today. And joining me to do that are my colleagues, Dan Dix and Amy Marshall. You've heard both of them on this podcast before. Dan Dix is 20 years in on tackling these revised ambient standards. So we've got the right guy here to help us through it. And of course, you've heard a lot from Amy in the past. She'll help us tackle some of the, the permitting implications of this. And Amy's very connected with, with EPA as well. So there's probably some upcoming EPA conversation components that we can talk about. So with that, let's just get right into it. And let's start with the basics of this and what, what has actually occurred. So, Dan, I'm going to start with you. What has EPA proposed relative to the PM2.5 NACs? So, they've proposed to go from 12 as the current annual standard to a range of 9 to 10. And the other thing I'll point out as well, I mean, this was a particulate matter reconsideration. So, as part of this as well, they proposed to retain the existing 24-hour PM2.5 standard of 35 micrograms per meter cubed. And they've also proposed to retain the PM10 24-hour standard of 150 micrograms per meter cubed. All right. So those are the the straight up numbers of it. And we're going to talk a lot a lot about like what those numbers mean. There actually is a fairly significant difference between 9 and 10. So that range, while it may seem small on the surface, there's a lot to that. Speaking of the concept of, of the range, and we were actually just talking about this before we got on recording. So EPA has proposed a range. They didn't necessarily propose a target number, and then we'll get comments on some other numbers. Amy, any any thoughts on that or, or insight into maybe how folks go about that now as people are submitting comments or just any other thoughts? Yep. So there are a lot of reviews that go on when, when the scientists are looking at whether or not a, a standard should be retained or lowered. They look at a lot of studies and data and information. There's a you know a, a science assessment, a risk assessment, a policy assessment. They have a Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee. So there are a lot of people looking at a lot of data, and sometimes there just isn't a consensus on a number. And so in this case, the Case Act decided that there should be a lowering of the standard, and it should be somewhere between 8 and 11. And here in their proposal, EPA has decided to narrow that a little bit and said, you know, we think the standard should be between nine and 10, you know, give us some comments on, you know, what we've done and what you think it should be. 
when we looked at the 2015 ozone standard, you know, we had some options as well. You know, EPA kind of had a a number that they were thinking was the right number, but they did take comments on whether the standard should be lower than that number as well. Got it. Appreciate that. So we've got the number, or we've got a range for a number anyway. It's proposed. So now there's a comment period associated with this. Dan, what's the thought process on what happens next? What's what's EPA's timing? Is there a time frame that they have to finalize the standard? And then we'll sort of go from there. But I just want to talk timing real quick. So what they have put out there is there's going to be a 60-day comment period. So we do know that much. Going back to 2021, when they announced that they were going to reconsider this next, they, they put out a schedule of from proposed to final was going to take eight months. So that, that's the data point that I have right now that I'm going off of. I haven't heard anything different. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of comments that are submitted in that 60 days, and, there's, and EPA has to address all those. And so that, that's what they're up against to hit that eight-month time frame. So if you go off of the, that timing, you've got two months' worth of comments. That puts us in March. And then you've got plus eight months if everything maybe goes real well or... <laughs> They get through the comments efficiently. So we're talking about something like the end of 2022, roughly. Amy, any other thoughts on that from what you've observed around EPA in the past? Well, first of all, it'd be the end of 2023. Oh, 2023. (laughs) 2023. Good point. Sorry, I got to get into my new year. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, originally, as Dan was saying, they announced that they were going to reconsider the next and we thought that we would see a proposal last summer and so they're already kind of behind where they were so it'll it'll be a big lift for them to get this done by the end of the year but i think it's you know it's it's a high profile rulemaking it's important to people and you know a lot of groups have been pressuring epa to get this done so they might make the end of the year all right, so we're going to watch this play out throughout the year, 2023. I, I finalized the next already, so end of 2023, we'll watch this play out. I think the idea here, though, is that there are steps that folks can, and in many cases should be taking to plan ahead, knowing that we're going to have this standard lowered. But let's start out, Dan, I'm going to go to you for this, and then we'll sort of see where we meander to. But when we have a standard that's final, So a new standard, it's out, it's final. State agencies have to start doing some things right away to address that standard. Can you walk through just broadly, what are the state agencies going to be doing upon finalization of the standard? I think it's good for everybody to have that perspective. Well, immediately, state agencies that have either state modeling requirements or if we're going through federal PSD, uh, permitting requirements, air quality modeling demonstrations are going to have to demonstrate compliance with this new standard. So that's that's the immediate thing that's going to affect applicants and and states. And then the other thing that's going to take some more time is states then are under the hook to go through the designation process of now they've got to look to their ambient monitoring stations and assess their current status with a new lower NACs. And then that's going to dictate whether they propose to, that their areas are going to be in attainment with the new standard 
or if they need to propose non-attainment areas with with the new standard. And that typically takes about, it's about a two-year period from when they propose it to then EPA reviewing that to EPA establishing through promulgation whether these areas are in attainment or non-attainment with the new NAC standard. Okay, so the state agencies are going to they're going to start evaluating the actual data. They're going to delineate attainment versus non-attainment areas. Right. EPA is going to have to take a spin through that. I'm going to maybe go off on a little tangent we'll come back to, but it's, let's see, January of 2023 right now. Dan, as far as the annual PM2.5 concentrations, like when do they become available? So, so I'm sort of thinking, what information are the state agencies most likely to be using to make this uh, determination? The data is available, I'll say, uncertified right now from 2022. It doesn't officially go through the certification process until May 1st of 2023. So we won't be able to have official data from this past year until May. Another thing just to specify is the design value for the annual P2.5 NACs, it's a three-year average. So mm. it's we're, we're looking back three years and we'll be able to drop off 2019 and go 2020, 21, 22 here in May. You know, I don't, so that's probably the, the three-year period that states will start to utilize to assess their compliance status. And so some of that's available, that, that's available right now uncertified to look at. Yeah, so I'm sort of thinking like if I'm, running a facility in a given area point is that right now I could look at, like you said, 20, 21, 22, albeit uncertified 22 mm-hmm. to see how some of the numbers are, are stacking up versus the nine versus nine and a half versus 10 or whatever number it may be in that range. So we'll have to see how all that, all that timing plays out. Amy, anything to add on that timing or anything else from your past experience? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right. So we've got the state agencies that are going to kick off a process when this thing gets finalized. So we we know that'll be going on. We've been telling folks that look at the monitoring data, (laughs) you know, look at your local monitoring data. What does it say? How much does it vary? If there's things that really jump out or certain periods of time that jump out, what's that about? Right. And there's possibly some conversations that could be had with state agencies as well to get a better understanding of the data for your facility locally, you know, and really what drives it. So now is definitely the time. We've been saying that, but now is certainly the time to get a feel for the monitoring data and and why it looks the way it does. I want to talk broadly about background concentrations first. And then we'll get into what are some of the implications for companies out there that we need to address. Amy, I think I'll start with you here because I recall looking at a lot of maps with you uh, over the last year or two that we were putting together to sort of assess the background concentrations and what do they mean. Dan, I know you've got some plots too, so I'll go to both of you for this. But just really broadly, nine versus 10. 
What does that mean? This is a big question, but we'll try to pack this in here. What does that mean for non-attainment versus attainment as far as how much non-attainment we should expect to see? And I think we've got some ideas on we, – we sort of know what the broad background concentrations are and maybe even the regions, right, where this could be a problem. So I, I just said a lot. Amy, I just look for your general perspective on this. Like, what what thoughts do you have around the nine versus ten and locations, and uh, just just what's your take at the moment? Yep. So a lot of times when we hear about a lower DAX, we tend to focus on, oh, how many areas are going to be in non-attainment, and that's it's a big issue. And so when your NAX is twelve, and the average value of all the monitors across the country is eight. Nine and ten are very close to what a lot of people are are seeing as the background in their area. But even if you're still an attainment area at whatever level of the standard they pick, you may not have a lot of room between the background concentration and the level of the standard. So it actually might be harder for you to be in an attainment area if you have to do a modeling demonstration, either for a project or a permit renewal, or because, you know, an interested party, you know, says something to the the state and they get very interested in what you're doing. Because, you know, you need to have a certain amount of, we'll call it headroom, to fit the the model of your facility between the background concentration and the NAC. So while you have, you know, requirements that certainly will apply to you if you're in a non-attainment area that are new, you will have different challenges if you're in an attainment area and you have to try to do a modeling demonstration. Good point, Amy. So we've got two different sets of challenges that we're talking about here. And I think we could safely say that those two sets of challenges will impact 100% of facilities that emit PM2.5, and in particular, are considered major sources for PM2.5, because the that, that headroom piece, even 10, even if it ends up in the high end of the range, there's not a whole lot of headroom. Dan, you put together some information on this. I recall looking at a I believe it was a whisker plot. Boxing whisker plot, yep. So I, I, I'm curious from your perspective, like any any quick observations there around the nature and extent of that challenge, maybe even at 10 and just what you found there. Yeah, I can get real specific. I've I've got the spreadsheet that EPA puts out there of the current design value. And, and I haven't been able to shut that spreadsheet all week with all four project managers calling me and asking me, what's the headroom? You know, how much room do I have? For some perspective, if we go from 12 to 10, non-attainment monitors jumps from 18 to 52. So 52 new monitors in non-attainment. If we go from 12 to nine, that jumps to 119 new areas that are in non-attainment. If you look on a map, that's, it's, most of California, and then we get into a lot of kind of major metropolitan areas in Texas, the southeast, in Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from. There's a bunch of new non-attainment areas that were historically non-attainment areas when I started my career 20 years that that go back into non-attainment. Dan, at the monitors that 
are still in attainment. Do you have a sense for, I guess, do you have a sense for like, you know, regionally, as you look at those monitors, like what's our low? Is, is there certain regions of the country where we're five and, and six? Or is it, I guess the interesting part about PM two and a half is that there's more PM two and a half monitors, and you correct me on this, Dan, if I'm wrong, but there are far more PM two and a half ambient monitors out there than, uh, let's say, SO2 and NOx. So we've got a fair number of PM two and a half data points, and maybe they're just all over, depending on regional background and other factors. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, there's a there's above 500 monitors in in the U.S. used for NACS designation process. There's other monitors used for other you know visibility and whatnot. I'd say it, that eight microgram average number that that Amy referenced. That's that's pretty common across the whole U.S. There's not yeah. really certain regions. And in my box and whisker plot, you know the the upper and lower box part goes from six point nine to nine. So honestly, the the bulk of the U.S. is like not going to have a whole lot of headroom left. I mean, I get surprised when I see five microgram as the background. I'm like, whoa, you've got lots of room. Is that that that's a number that jumps yeah. out to me that I that I saw recently in a, in a pretty rural area uh, of the country for a project that I looked at this week. So six point nine to nine. So you've got in the in the nine microgram per cubic meter situation, you've got those hundred and nineteen exceedances, we'll call it, based on the three-year average. And then you've got most of the other monitors out there that aren't exceeding with somewhere two micrograms of headroom or less. Yeah. I'd most of them less. Yeah. So that's that's maybe a uh, the most challenging situation that, that we end up in here coming out of this whole process. Okay. I wanted to give folks perspective on, because like Amy said, we've got the two different sets of challenges the non-attainment situation or the attainment with very little headroom situation that we're talking about. And I wanted to make sure we gave people perspective on like what that looked like with the actual data, which is hard to do when you're just talking on a podcast, but I think we've covered it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of data. You know, we will certainly cover it more in the coming months as this thing gets finalized. So let's talk now about those different challenges that folks are going to face. So Amy, I think I'll start with you here. So say that the agency goes through that attainment, non-attainment process, and they land on non-attainment. Okay, so we have a formal non-attainment designation now. From a permitting standpoint, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what the state also needs to do in terms of rulemaking, because I think if you're non-attainment, there's a couple of things that go on. There's the permitting implications and then there's the state rulemaking implications because the state needs to be putting rules out and limits out to get into attainment. And some of those can be very, very direct. But for permitting non-attainment, what does that look like for those folks around the country who maybe aren't used to non-attainment permitting, but may become used to it when this thing gets finalized? Yep. In this case, it almost might be easier in a non-attainment area because you don't have to worry about modeling. But if you want to do a project where your project is going to increase emissions, you're going to have to find some way to offset those emissions such that you're not, you know, contributing to prolonged non-attainment or degradation of that area. So 
you know, folks might have to get a little more creative in the design of their projects now and, and maybe find partners nearby that are doing reduction projects such that they can get offsets of, of PM two and a half emissions if they want to expand. And that's through Amy, the formal purchase of emission reduction credits. So to your point, there's got to be a, a market there, you know, to go to. Dan, you've got some pretty specific experience. Amy said we could avoid modeling. In in a lot of cases that that could be true. I think maybe in some not so much. Can you talk about how this has looked in some of the talk talk about precursors, talk about the offsets that might be available. Like like how does that look just so people start getting a sense for it? Yeah, I've I have gone through and still I'm going through a non-attainment news source review major project in one of the current PM 2.5 non-attainment areas. And Amy's right. I mean, there's no requirement to do modeling, but there's always the potential that the, the state agencies can, at their discretion, ask for it. That's what they did in this case. So even though we were non-attainment, they asked us to put together a PM 2.5 modeling demonstration for a non-attainment news source review permit. You've also got this added complexity of PM 2.5 that are that there are PM 2.5 precursors, so NOx and SO2. So now you have to be concerned about triggering non-attainment news source review by having too much of an increase in NOx or SO2 as well. Another thing I've been thinking about, there is also benefit there as well, in that when I have to offset or I have to, I have to purchase emission reduction credits, I can actually purchase precursor like NOx and SO2 credits to apply to PM 2.5. EPA, and I went through this again 10, 15 years ago, has some guidance out there on like ratios. And so, for example, 200 to 1 was put out there. 200 NOx tons is equivalent to 1 PM 2.5 ton. So that, that could be a way of purchasing ERCs because these PM 2.5 credits, they're going to be scarce. Another thing I'll point out for areas that don't have current non-attainment areas, states are going to have to set up the regulatory framework to have a banking system. And until they do that, this is all going to be case-by-case ERC development. Dan, if I'm if I'm recalling this correctly, there was some modeling that we had to do at that time to show that the NOx or SO2 ERCs that we were purchasing were, I forget, I wouldn't even know how to term this. Basically, that there was an equivalent air quality impact of those reductions at the locations of our emissions increase. Am I sort of saying that right? That's you're, another thing that might come up. You're saying it right, and, and I I opened up that that analysis today because it's going to become more relevant, so I, I, I have a fresh look at it. But that's exactly it. PM 2.5 credits are going to be more scarce, so you're going to have to look to not just your area, but potentially, you know, next county over, half a state over. And if I'm purchasing credits from a different non-attainment area, I need to do a modeling demonstration that confirms that those credits that far away is impacting my non-attainment area. And therefore, there's a, you know, again, there's a net benefit. That's the whole nexus of the non-attainment news source review program that you're, you're offsetting and you're reducing those non-attainment pollutants in that area to help them get back into attainment. So Dan, I guess I'm I'm curious 
thinking about recommendations here, you know, so if, if we're in a non-attainment, uh, if we're in a non-attainment situation, I'll, I'll put some recommendations out there and then Dan and Amy, you can maybe add to them. But Amy mentioned the control technology requirements. So, so in non-attainment, lowest achievable emission rate is a higher hurdle to clear than best available control technology because it, it lowest achievable emission rate or layer, it doesn't, you, there's, not supposed to be a cost component to that. It's just basically like, hey, if there's something technically feasible that you could do to reduce PM two and a half, you do it. Doesn't matter how much it costs. So that's a hurdle. So I, I would say if if you're in one of these situations where not you could be in a non-attainment area, look very, very closely at your NOx. SO2 and PM2.5 emissions. Make sure the estimates are, are very solid and very representative. Think a little bit about reductions that might be available, because there's two different ways you could use those reductions. One, the reductions could be used in the mathematics for whatever project that you're looking at as an internal thing, so you don't even, you don't even end up triggering major non-attainment new source review. Or Presumably, Dan was talking about a scarce scarcity of these type of formal credits out there. You could have something valuable on your hands with those SO2, NOx, and PM2.5 emission reductions to be able to put out there into the market. And I like what Amy said. If, if we're at a facility and we've got neighboring facilities around us, now might be the time to start talking to them a little bit about what their plans are in a collaborative way. <laughs> because there could be some work that could be done together to generate offsets for projects that some of my neighbors are, are undertaking or vice versa. So there's, there's probably some conversations that can occur that way. Dan and Amy, is that a reasonable set of uh, suggested things to look at? Yeah, and I wonder if there's opportunity to get a little bit creative with the state and think a little bit out of the box. You know, if you look at the PM two and a half national emissions inventory, there are a lot of sources like, you know, agriculture and prescribed burns and wildfires and things like that, that contribute to the PM two and a half emissions. So, you know, can we go outside of the traditional box, if you will, and, you know, do some kind of project if you're near say agricultural land to help them, reduce their dust emissions? Is there something that the state agency could do with the Forest Service to help, you know, with emissions from prescribed burns or something like that? So, Good point. Now's the time to be creative. Dan, what else? The other thing I'll just remind folks of is when we talk about non-attainment, we're talking about a potential two-year timeframe. So while maybe the ship has passed to do a modeling demonstration under the current standard, we still got two years to go through a project now that doesn't trigger non-attainment nuisance review permit requirements if you're not in a non-attainment area right now. Right. So there's a timing, potential timing component. Right. And then you're dealing with the other set of challenges we're going to talk about. Right. You're dealing with modeling challenges, but you're not dealing with layer and you're not dealing with costly ERCs yet. So you got, got a little bit of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, good. So we've talked non-attainment. We've talked some about non-attainment. There's probably a lot more than that. But in a, in a nutshell, some of the things that, that we should expect to see coming up. Now let's go to the second set of challenges, which is we don't have a non-attainment situation. So we're one of those monitors that's 
we're one of those areas that's less than nine or less than 10, if that ends up being the standard. So then we're not dealing with non-attainment new source review for NSR major sources. We're dealing with prevention of significant deterioration, which to Amy's point has the best available control technology aspect to it, and also the direct modeling requirement to evaluate PM two and a half, model PM two and a half, if we trigger PSD for either direct PM two and a half, and Dan, correct me, or now SO2 or NOx. So any of those three will have us modeling direct PM two and a half. So the, the funnel of, of projects, the, the, the funnel keeps getting bigger of things that catch you know, the direct PM 2.5 modeling requirement. So Dan, walk through, we've talked about this a lot in the past, but just walk through the big picture of a PSD modeling demonstration, the background piece, the, the facility piece, how they get added together, how that all fits together, and then therefore why the headroom is important. So you're spot on about precursors, NOx, and SO2 now triggering direct PM 2.5 modeling. That was a change that happened this year, in, I'm sorry, last year in 2022 in some guidance that was put out there. But yeah, headroom is very important when I've got to do a NAX modeling demonstration. The current guidance, and I'll emphasize guidance out there, is that I have to model the potential to emit rates from all my PM2.5 emitting sources at my facility. I've got to add in current background concentration. And that, and that's what we're dealing with. That's the headroom. And when I add the peak predicted model concentration, I'm then required to add in the annual monitored design value, which is this headroom. And then sometimes if that background isn't accounting for local sources, I also have to model local sources. So if we've got a headroom of three micrograms left after I look at that background value, I got to fit all that three for all my sources at the facility and potential neighboring sources into that analysis. So Dan, we, we have very little space with which to model the emissions. And so then the conversation automatically and naturally goes to AirMod, the model, and the manner in which that it handles in particular, because for PM2.5, it's a little different than some of the other pollutants in that we know we've got point sources, but we also know that for many types of industries, we have fugitive PM2.5 emission sources. And, and so it starts to get into the manner in which the model is handling those fugitive emissions and how conservative that can tend to be. I think that's a topic for its probably its own podcast or its own presentation. So we won't get into it right here, but I guess, Dan, I kind of put it to you on the modeling side. Do you have any sort of big picture observations of like things to watch out for or just how difficult fugitive emissions sort of make this exercise? Yeah. I mean, the biggest message is it's, it's not about magnitude of PM2.5 emission rate. It's about, do I have a fugitive ground level release that's close to our property line? Those are all, honestly, usually the culprits in a lot of cases that are driving, you know, high model predicted concentrations 
from AirMod, and then add on the fact that it's really difficult even to to measure and quantify said emission rates that we were putting in to the model for those types of sources that make it especially difficult. So I think here, and, and I'm not, these are not new recommendations, but they're probably we're just emphasizing them now, even more so because of this change to the standard. If we are at a facility that is a major source with respect to PSD, and we have projects coming up, we need to be looking at those projects as soon as possible to understand what the emissions increases are going to be for SO2, NOx, and PM2.5. There's other important pollutants too, but we're focused on the PM2.5 NAX today. So we need to understand what the increases are going to be for those pollutants, what offsets, once again, same as for the non-attainment, what, what reductions or offsets are available within the boundaries, within the, the walls of my facility that might offset some increases that I have as part of a strategic project. Because the goal here should be that you know, we're offsetting emissions increases that we have, knowing that we're going to run into some of these challenges, these conservative models, and some other things that are out of our control if we actually have to go through the major PSD process. So that's definitely, that's not a new recommendation, but as this headroom gets tighter and tighter and tighter, it just becomes more and more important because we don't want to be in a position where there's a big important project that comes up and an opportunity to grow or get into a new market. And we're sort of, you know, facing a very tight PM two and a half standard and modeling and things like that, because that will not happen quickly. So I think that gets into, you know, some of the things that we can be doing here to, to plan ahead. So Amy, I'll go to you and Dan. I know you've both been thinking about this for, for PSD and even for non-attainment, I, I suppose there's probably some common themes, but I know you've put together lists of things, Amy, of like, do these things, you know, do these things to plan ahead right now while EPA is going through the process of getting this finalized. So, Amy, I'll start with you on, on those recommendations, and then Dan, we'll go to you after that. Yeah, I think getting a better handle on your emissions inventory is important. You know, like you said, PM2.5 could be hard to measure. And so I think a lot of times people have used some very conservative assumptions or conservative methodologies to, to estimate PM2.5 emissions. And it's worked before because there hasn't been as much of a concern. But now, I mean, think about it. If the background is 8 and, you're, and the standard is going from 12 to 9 to make your model work, if you modeled your mill as four before, your plant as four before, now you're going to need to get down to one to make the model work. So, you know, can I improve my emissions by 75% by either doing some refinements to my inventory or, you know, finding some things that I can do to, you know, control my emissions or improve my model impacts, which Dan can probably tell us some strategies there. Yeah, Dan, proactively on the on the modeling side, I mean, I suppose there could be some proactive modeling to better understand and assess like, you know, where things stand. But what other thoughts do you have? Yeah, I mean, modeling is just it's gonna identify those priorities for you. You know, what are the sources that are, you know, 
driving, you know, high concentrations and you can focus in on on those if if you potentially want to do some type of testing. The other thing that I that I point out that is not always evident to people is you're talking about the math here. If you know, do I have, you know, reductions that I can apply as part of the math? You know, even if even if the, the math quote unquote doesn't work out to avoid PSD, I can model negative emission rates. I can model those reductions and it's it's the you know it's the net increase in, in predicted ambient concentrations that we're comparing against the max. Um, and then uh, you know it's all about in the model improving dispersion. So making sure these fugitive sources they're parametized the right way. We know there's you know a lot of I'll say flexibility you know and different ways to parameterize fugitive sources. So that's good and and bad. When you get to point sources, you know it gets more straightforward that you know higher exit velocities and you know uh, increase in fan speed or a taller stack could could help with dispersion and, and reduce impacts. I, I think what I'm hearing is that these are it's it's sort of like what are all of the things that we can look at that will tell us what emission refinement or data collection, or model improvement, or heck, damn, maybe even I, I don't know. It's models are going to be so tight that maybe even meteorological data, maybe even collecting some site-specific meteorological data. I mean, it could come down to things like that. Like, what are some things we could do to 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 maybe even refine and tighten the model even more? But it's it's be thinking about what are all these different layers that we can evaluate now so that we know the different levers we're going to have to pull. And, and we should know what those levers are now because assessing that and being able to understand that takes some time. And you don't want to take that time when you've been approached with a significant and important and strategic project I mean, I, generally speaking, we don't have folks come to us with projects and say, hey, let's take our time on this one. We've got a few years. I mean, most strategic projects are in response to a very specific uh, market driver, and they need to be done quickly. So we should, we should understand what the levers are now. So I would just be thinking about that broadly you know, for our, for our listeners. So I appreciate the, the recommendations and insights. All right, final topic. Let's talk a little bit about environmental justice. Maybe this is a lengthy conversation. I don't know. Maybe it's a quick conversation. But we've had a number of podcasts, and obviously, we're seeing a lot of developments around environmental justice and a lot of activity around that. That's that's its own separate podcast. Amy, from your perspective, what, what's the tie-in here? Now that we have a proposed PM 2.5 NACs, is there some tie-in that people should be thinking about for projects right now that might relate to EJ and comments and and things like that. Yeah. Well, I think environmental justice and all the, you know, activity around it has just really shown that there's more of a community interest in facilities and projects than ever. And part of that is an interest in evaluating cumulative impacts, not just the impact of your facility on a community, but if there are, you know, other facilities in your area. So a lot of times when you're thinking about permitting in a project, you're, you're worried about what your impact is 
you know, we could see some guidelines coming that force you to look at cumulative impacts and, you know, non-error items, you know, as a, as a result of EJ. I think even though we don't have a final next right now, if you put in a permit application today and you were demonstrating compliance, you know, real close to 12, you're probably going to get some comments on that and say, you know, the state shouldn't issue this permit because of, you know, the burden it's going to cause, even though the standard isn't lower yet, there's a proposal out that says it should be lower. So, you know, hey, state, you're, you should tell the facility to, you know, reduce its impact on our community. And in states where maybe the, the policy right now is not to model if you're not doing a PSD project, you know, some states have you model as part of permit renewal or when there's a new standard or when you're doing minor NSR permitting. I think if there's an increase in community interest in certain facilities that might, you know, push the state to start requiring modeling demonstrations or, or just asking for modeling demonstrations. We saw that a lot for SO2 and there was a lot of interest there when we had the new one hour next. So I think just, you know, there's a higher level of interest and awareness. Appreciate that, Amy. Dan, any final thoughts on that topic overall? Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'll, I'll point out is in EPA's announcement of this proposed NACS, they're also said they're going to make changes to the PM 2.5 ambient monitoring siting requirements where they want to include an environmental justice factor to basically ensure that monitors are being cited in what they term at-risk communities. So I think that's that's new. That's the first time that for monitor citing regulations, they're, they're including some EJ component. Good point, Dan. Yeah, that's, a, that's a not surprising to see that show up, right? I mean, EJ and climate have been the two things that routinely show up in just about any EPA rulemaking on any topic. And you know, these ambient standards are probably more related to EJ community modeling than really just about anything else. So there's a tie-in here for sure. Okay, we covered a lot. I think I'm done. Dan and Amy, is there anything we missed that we should mention uh, around PM two and a half right now? Dan, I see you raising your hand. I've just got a final thought, and that is yes. that I I was careful to clarify this. We talk about headroom. It's it's because of EPA's current guidance that has us add the design value to the maximum model concentration. I think there's got to be some give there. Like we got to work with state agencies to, to develop a representative background concentration. And that may not always mean that we just take the design value from EPA's website and add that to our model concentration. We got to be, you know, a little bit more forward thinking about developing that and pushing the envelope. And those are the conversations to be having with EPA. We will have them with EPA and to be having with, with the agencies right now. And Dan, it's a good clarification because, yes, there will be areas that are in non-attainment as an outcome of this, right? But then in those other areas, when we're talking about PSD projects and modeling, we're not talking about projects that are going to result in an actual exceedance of a national ambient air quality standard. We're talking about projects that may show a procedural 
exceeds, if you will, or a on paper due to the nature conservative nature of the regulatory process, right? So when we're talking about planning for things, we're talking about how to address the conservative nature yes. of the regulatory and permitting process that we encounter. And I think that's always important to distinguish and differentiate. And to and to your point, Dan, like so Okay, let's talk about that. That's the kind of collaboration that all the stakeholders in this process, right? Public, agency, facility, like those are the conversations that can and should be occurring. So I think it's a good point of clarification. Amy, anything else you have to add? Not at this time. No. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. That was a, uh, I'll tell you, I don't know you're going to find a more packed 45 minutes of content at any conference or presentation that that you'd attend. So I had a lot of fun with that. We're going to keep tracking PM two and a half, obviously, as the year goes on. And we'll have more updates on ozone and some other standards as well. But for now, I hope that was helpful. Hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks as always for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.